Brent Nunn Podcast, where you and I get to sit down and talk to some people who have cracked the epic combination lock that is the music business. These are people I've met over a decades-long journey in the music industry. Scrappy and clever folks. From turmoil to triumph, disarray to discipline, we're about to find out what they know. Here we go. What's life like when you're riding the wave of a hit song? What's it like coming down and then reinventing yourself and reinventing yourself again? Let's find out. In this episode, we sit down with Steve Van Dam. He's a multi-instrumentalist, vocalist, and founding member of the band Everything. He co-wrote the hit song Hooch, which cracked the top 10 in Billboard's pop and adult contemporary charts in 1998. He played 250 shows a year for a decade. Everything sold 30,000 records out of the trunk of their car in college before they were ever signed. Steve's also a music engineer, producer, and composer. He's written hit jingles like the Bomb Chickawawa song and the viral commercial campaign for Axe Body Spray. He currently owns and operates Light the Music, a software platform and startup company delivering project-based learning, expert coaching, and support for educators all through an app that not only transforms the classroom, but is ideal for socially distanced music learning. Steve takes us on a journey from band to startup and everything in between. Now, without further ado, Steve Van Dam. All right. Uh, Steve Van Dam, welcome. Hey, good to be here. Nice to chat with you. It's been a minute. It's been a little while. The <laughs> When I heard the, the track that we worked on together, I was like, Oh yeah. Like I just it had not even been in my brain for, I don't know how long. Recently I went back and, um, found stuff that my band did in high school, uh, on four, on a four track mm-hmm. for, it was for an independent study project at school and we recorded a record and I, I'd literally forgotten songs I'd written. Right. Isn't that, it's amazing. It's, uh, um, I'll, I'll tell the short version of this. I got to work with some kids on the autism spectrum who are non-speaking, they, um, they're called the tribe, um, up in Northern Virginia. And I was doing a a music session with them. And the first question that, that I like to start with is what is music? Mm. And usually, you know, you're working with students and you say, what is music? And they're like, well, it's like, you know, you hear it on the radio or you, you sing along to it, or it's got a good beat, you know, and this one kid, they, uh, they speak by, um, touching letters on, on letter boards. So you like ask a question, there's this like two minute pause while they're doing the letter board thing. And this guy said, to me, music is literally a time machine. And I was just like, wow, cool. You know, (laughs) I may borrow that. Right. Cause it it really is. I mean, that, that, I, I was back in the 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 original version of the dojo, my my recording studio where where I mixed that um, track that you sent me, and and I just I mean the whole thing it was just like yeah music it's it's magic music is is magic period so it's like the, the equivalent of like smelling burning leaves I guess and remembering totally. when you were a kid totally yeah we have we have so many of uh, of our old shows. 
Some have been digitized, and so they they live now for for however long the interwebs live. But uh, there's Eternity. a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch more that yeah. depending on the night. Some nights were really good. Some some nights were were less good sound wise and performance wise. A- everything, know. right? Yeah, you've got the magic of the crowd, the band, yeah. the technology, yeah. um, all that. Uh, I want to ask you a few questions about. Um, the first few things I was thinking about when I was thinking about talking with you was you play like six instruments or something, you know, you, you wind instruments, you play guitar, you sing. What did you start with? I started, I'm a lifelong musician. I started at age five. My, my older brothers had piano lessons and I, I just wouldn't, wouldn't leave them alone. Like, you know, the, the guy given the piano lesson would come over and I was just like, you know, like on the keys. Yeah. <laughs> and my parents were like, um, do you want to do this? And, and I never looked back. I wanted to, so you go, uh, did was, your parents play music? My mom. Um, I remember I have vivid memories of her playing. Um, she played piano and she would play like, like Beethoven etudes kind of, you know, that kind of stuff, piano music, but then also like church hymns, like just, you know, always, always playing, you know, that stuff. So that's pretty vivid. And then we had, uh, you know, there was a record player with a lot, again, like a lot of like very proper, like, you know, classical music and, and like show tunes and stuff like that. Mm. Um, not even like the Beatles. Like I didn't even like, I didn't get a lot of that until I was, I was older, but, uh, um, but yeah, so a lot, a lot of like proper and, and church music growing up. For, for me, it was similar. I, I had heard, I guess when I was a little, little kid, I had a record player and I had like seven records and they were like, you know, Frosty the Snowman and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then my parents listened to sort of fifties music, I guess you'd call it um, rock and roll from the olden days, Uh that kind of thing. And when I was like seven or eight years old, my cousins brought, my cousins came to visit and they brought Van Halen one. Right. And it was like, I'd never heard music before. (laughs) I I couldn't even believe that there was music that sounded like that. It was amazing. Yeah. 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 I remember, I think I got like a Beach Boys record for Christmas. That was like the first album that I ever got. But then I bought um, Because the Night. That was the first 45 I ever bought, Um, you know, back when they, when that's, that's how old I am. Some uh, of our listeners may not know what a 45 (laughs) is. It's a, it's a little record about the size of a CD and it's got a big hole in the middle of it. And it, it plays like a record except quicker. It plays at a different speed. It's a single, but it was a. It was the way um, they were a dollar, and and they sold them at the drugstore. They had like the top twenty singles at the, whatever the drugstore was back then. So so to go back, so you yeah, this all this classical so, music. You didn't yeah. even hear the Beatles yet. So so what happened? Did you pick up clarinet or clarinet. saxophone? Clarinet was the next. I wanted to play drums. So in fourth grade, you get to like be in band and and pick an instrument. And I was like drums, definitely drums. I want to play drums. And my parents were like. Mm. Maybe, maybe clarinet. And I was just like, I didn't care. I was just like, I want to play something. Yeah. So, um, but I was always on the drums uh, in band and, and all that. I was just, I couldn't leave them alone. And then, so you yeah, played clarinet in band at school. Yeah. And I played you... clarinet all the way through college and, and to this day a little bit, but um, yeah, like I, I had like a little scholarship at JMU for, for playing clarinet. Um, and the, cool. the, the funny thing about clarinet is, you know, you have to have your embouchure. You have to, like, you know, the yep. muscles around your mouth, you have to, like, you know, that, that's your chops. You, you work up to that. And, and, and it's crucial. And I would get so nervous for auditions. I would get, um, mm. 
you know, or, or like even for grading, like I can't remember what the, those things are called where you like play and there's like three people behind a, a screen, you know, and I would get right. so freaking nervous. Yeah. And, uh, and so the first thing that goes, is like your embouchure is just like, you know, and you and like your tone and all that stuff. So I, I performed like much under my ability. And, and the funny thing about that, the funny thing about that story is um, I started playing saxophone and that was all like just high school, you know, like I was in a band, we were called Those Damn Kids and, and like, you know, that was our band. <laughs> One of the, uh, actually two of the original, the original members of everything were, were in that band one briefly and the other one, uh, Mark, our keyboard player, but, uh, this but, was high school, college. Yeah. High school. So this yeah, is like school. late eighties. Um, and, um, so playing saxophone and then I, and I played some keyboards and, uh, and then I picked up my buddy's guitar and, and that was just like, like love. Then it's done. But, yeah. But the funny thing is I never, ever was nervous for anything. I mean, there were times where we did like we filmed, uh, you know, like we were on TV or or we were in front of like 30,000 people. And I was like pumped mm-hmm. and like, yeah, but like I was never like nervous, yeah. you know, like I was it was just it, it was a different thing. And, and as as I realized that I was that was one of the many things that sort of directed my path towards pop music as opposed to, you know, classical or band or, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's funny. I, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. You're so you're nervous in front of three people, but not mm. at all in front of 30,000. Yeah. How, I think so how does that work? Well, it's, it, it, this is uh, we'll touch on this again, I'm sure, but I've got a bit of a soapbox about how we teach music to kids. And, and mm. this is why I'm partly why I'm doing what I'm doing right now with light the music, but it's it's all about like this quest for perfection and you're being judged on your your tone and your technique and your your you know did you get all the notes right and and mm. there's this like there's right and wrong there's it's mm. a it's the, there's there's no it 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 doesn't really matter if you put your heart into that or not you know and and so the difference between that and pop music which is like it only matters if you put your heart into it, you know, like we don't teach music like that. We don't, um, necessarily, you know, there, there are teachers, especially chorus teachers, I think who, um, do that, but like in general, and, and I think that was the thing for me was just like this, uh, it was very cold. It was very like sterile and, and, and pop music was anything but that. And the other thing for me is like the best drug in the world is, is playing a room, you know, like the mm-hmm. energy in a room, the people in a room and, yeah. and, uh, this desperate need for external validation that I've, that I've <laughs> come to terms with as a, as an older adult. But like yeah. back then it was just like, wow, all these people like me. Yes. Yeah. You know, right. and that, I mean, that's like, it's <clears throat> still the best drug in the world, just playing music and, and like being able to kind of shape the energy in the room amazing you know like magic yeah lead lead singer in a band syndrome you know for me was Mm. the tough thing to mature through (laughs) i guess is the right way maybe to say it It, i've thought about this a lot about playing in front of um a small number of people yeah i played in so many so many empty rooms in my life that i ended up i became an expert really at playing empty rooms and Mm -hmm. and our goal was to make if there were three people that they had never heard a band so awesome that was our goal right um and so when i got good at playing in small empty rooms occasionally we'd get a full 
small room and there would be nerves there. But mm. after we did that a number of times, then there was no nerves there. But right. then if there was an, another stage that was sort of a new, a new first thing, sometimes yeah. there'd be, there'd be nerves there. Um, but the fact that we played so many shows, hundreds of shows a year, there got to be a point where we knew we were going to kill it. We knew yep. we were going to, and it was exciting. We, yeah. we want to get up there and do it. Yeah. And totally. and I present you guys were doing 200, 300 shows a year in the late 200, 80s, early Yeah. 90s. 200 shows a year for almost 10 years, uh, which like that was pretty much the nineties for us. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, and I think it's, you know, I, I think looking back on it, I, there, there probably were times that I was nervous for sure. I've always gotten nervous when, um, like I, like a guitar player that I know is really good mm. is, is on the side stage and I'm yeah. like, Oh, now like, like everything I'm doing is under a microscope and like, it's my own microscope, but it's like, that's, uh, that I think I, I have like maybe some rose colored glasses for some of that. Like I'm sure some of the Dave Matthews shows and some of the, the bigger, you know, sort of high profile shows that we did probably, you know, I was, I was nervous, but, uh. Because well, yeah, you want to bring on, it, you yeah, want to bring it exactly, and and we had played so many shows, just like you're saying. You know, we played tons of empty rooms, and we had a little bit different aesthetic. Sometimes when it was an empty room, it was just like a license to ill. You know, just like hey, you know what, this doesn't matter at all. Let's have some fun and see <laughs> yeah. how weird we can go. You know, yeah. So, um, so that that sometimes we did that, but but yeah, once you just play and play and play. You just you develop this uh, confidence in 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 the band. Like I know what the band's about to do right now. Like let's go, you know. And so that yeah. um, even for a big show is just like it's more excitement. It's more like just you're pumped and and uh, just let me out there, you know. We used to play a weekly show in Charlottesville at a place called the Outback Lodge. Oh yeah, and there was a there was a period of time for I don't know a year or something where Leroy Moore mm. uh, from the Dave Matthews band uh, would show Amazing up musician. and just hang out. Yeah. Um, and our sax player, Steve Norfleet, did you uh -huh. ever know Steve? Yeah. 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 Um, he's um, he, the first time Leroy showed, he was a huge Dave Matthews yeah. fan and, and a huge Leroy fan. I mean, yeah. Leroy uh, is, is a, was amazing a, was musician a, a monster a master yeah. master musician he yeah. taught me Leroy taught me not playing he taught me like stand on stage with your hands folded over your instrument and just wait mm. you know that's yeah. what he taught me and then and then when it's time to play you know oh that dude wow well, so there was, I don't know, in the middle of the first set or something, we're sitting there on stage and Leroy just sort of walks in and sits on the bar stool and, and <laughs> Norfleet just lost it. Uh, it was, right? You know, just leave. <laughs> yeah. So Step off the stage. It was exciting. It was exciting, you know, to your yeah. point about having, having somebody that you really respect yeah. sitting there and listening to it. It was yeah. cool. So um, I want to go, going back to saxophone and, mm -hmm. and. Do you play tenor or alto mostly? Alto. 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 I messed around with uh, alto and soprano. I never could really get tenor. And we had a great tenor player with Rich Bradley. So, like, that was, um, it was always, like, he got that. But uh, alto was, was my jam. And, and the other thing that I listened to growing up in high school a lot was ska and I was going to ask you about stuff Scott. with horns, and it was just like that. Um, Do you listen to Fishbone? Oh, loved. When Fishbone yeah. came out, I was listening to ska yeah. before that, like English Beat and Specials and Selector and Madness and 
like deep, deep into that. I, I still have that stuff and talk about like, you yeah. know, sort of memory lane too. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, then Fishbone came out and it was this like funkier, dirtier, it had a little punk in it. Uh, and their live shows, that was the uh. other inspiration was just the energy level of their live shows was just like, like 10 times the amount of some other band. Like and, and dudes just, just jumping on stage and then like in the middle of a solo, like they just throw a trombone across the stage and someone reach <laughs> their hand up and grab it and start playing it. Like yeah. it was, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, love, I love, love Fishbone. I yeah. wondered, um, especially some of your earlier records that you guys did. Um, I certainly heard, you know, horn section and the oh, yeah. sky influence um, was there for sure. And that energy, just that like, you know, and, and this was something that we we did a live show so much better than we did a, a recorded album for a long, long time, maybe like three or four. And, and like, I think albums two, three, four, maybe even five were like, you know, had record like live show stuff on them just because it was it was that was better you know but um that we just that energy you know like we put so much energy into our shows and just sweat and and it was it was almost kind of manic it was funny like again like with dave matthews as they came up and and we played shows together there was this like, oh, you know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, the whole time just like beating them over the head, you know? <laughs> yeah. It can be like, you can do, you can really dig into the softer, more thoughtful stuff. And yeah. same crowds too. The funny thing is like, you know, like fraternity shows, like we yeah. came up in the same Petri dish and and right. yet he was doing stuff like Satellite and it was beautiful. And it was just like, yeah. oh, you know, like yeah. we were like knuckleheads. We were like, oh, like look at him with fire making <laughs> cooked meat, you know, yes. it was just like, it was like, I, I don't know, just a very good learning experience. But um, well, gr growing yeah. up in Charlottesville, uh, you know, I, I and I was thinking about this. There's a, a, a definitely a Virginia connection with us that, mm -hmm. that I find interesting playing in bands um, in the late 80s, early 90s. Obviously, you know, in Charlottesville, there was uh, Indecision and Skip oh, yeah. Castro yep. um, in the 80s was way, way into in Indecision. Love those guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were sort of doing the kind of thing in Charlottesville, we all saw them kind of taking off yeah. regionally. And yeah. we're like, wow, this is really doable and possible. Right. Before, you know, they sort of, in some ways, in my mind, paved the way before Dave Matthews. But then when Dave Matthews came, yeah. it was a true rocket ship. And yeah. I'd go, they started playing tracks every week, yeah. um, which I guess is the early 90s or late 80s or something like that. And yeah. we would go, and actually, the first time I saw them was at Van Riper's. Did you guys ever play at Van Riper's? Oh, yeah. 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 Which was a out, little outdoor festival in in outside of Charlottesville, and it was it was it was so cool. It was just yep. the coolest thing. I was in high school at the time. I don't know why they let us in. How how we managed that, but that I saw partly them. why partly why it was so cool. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of wide open, Pro probably so <laughs> wide open. Yeah. So we we showed up there, and Dave Matthews played, and they did their their famous version of All Along the Watchtower. Yeah. Um, and it blew my mind, and I was like, I got to see these guys. Went to tracks the next week and saw them. There's like I don't know 150 people, mm -hmm. and then. I went back a month or two later and there's like 300 people. And yep. then a couple months later, it's like 600 people. That place only held a thousand. Yep. And it was only about a year or two later, um, my band was loading in one day at tracks and on the television, everybody kind of stopped for a second. And Dave Matthews showed up on the television on MTV and just we, none of us could really believe it. Yeah. It was like, Rocket those ship. dudes are, man, are, are on MTV. Yeah. It was really cool. It was very cool though. Yeah. No, they were just, 
they were such a juggernaut and 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 everything about the band the players i mean dave as as a as a human and as a songwriter and as a just all of all of the the magic that is dave we got to spend a lot of time with with that dude and and like he is incredibly entertaining no matter <laughs> what like i mean just uh, some stories not appropriate for this podcast but wow <laughs> like amazing just always completely entertaining as a storyteller etc and then but they also had the the management piece and the like yeah. that you know corn mm-hmm. capshaw and and just that the whole thing was just like you know rocket meat rocket fuel go you know totally. I, it was just amazing yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, and that was a great time. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of some other bands like Virginia Coalition, mm-hmm. Fighting Gravity. Yeah, um, Agents of Good Roots. Oh man, love Agents Droll. Of Good... Yes. Yeah. 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 All those guys. Yeah. There was those a scene, are... and it wasn't even just Virginia. There was like a kind of a mid Atlantic scene. I mean, Hootie and the Blowfish, Edwin McCain. These were yeah. these were bands that we were just like going all like that whole circuit and just right. you know playing shows together. We'd open up for Hootie down South Carolina. They'd come up and open up for us in Virginia and Maryland, and, and it was just like that was the that was the scene. You know, it was it was a great music scene. There was a really uh, really powerful thing going on. Yeah, definitely. I'm trying to remember um, Pat McGee. Do we mention? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and um, Guar. Did you remember now? Guar is a whole other. Like that's uh, they're <laughs> from Richmond. There were some cool. Like Richmond has always had this really cool. And I, I've lived here now for gosh, almost a dozen years. But uh, yeah, there was this. I think it's VCU and and Richmond yeah. like has this really interesting like history as as sort of the capital of the South and and. This very like kind of you know old money southern kind of you know that thing, but then with VCU, in its like sort of this really indie heartbeat of of where where it's completely opposite and 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 because of that it it really has has thrived and there's been some amazing weird stuff come out of VCU but like yeah War this <laughs> band called the Alternatives um, which was like this really weird like like uh philip glass or steve reich kind of like yeah. you know minimalist stuff but it was all with like you know electric you know band uh rock and roll band instrumentation so yeah yeah super cool stuff and then there's the the sound of music recording studios oh yeah david lowry's place there yeah. which we recorded a couple records there yeah and that was always the most awesome you know back back in those days we, you didn't have home recording studios that where you could make an awesome sounding record in your basement so you had to yeah. fork out tons of cash and right. go somewhere good right um we were we were the uh when i started recording and producing so so we did you know everything the band lived basically in the 90s like just uh like 89 to like 2001 2002 maybe and then at that point i had started doing some production and recording and stuff and started getting you know towards my 10,000 hours in, in pro tools but there was a hybrid model that that around that time that you could go and track drums at a place like sound of music and then all right. the single mic stuff you could do because it didn't really matter as long as you had like a you know a dead enough room but um so that's what i started doing with a lot of bands um but uh Oh, what's his name? John Morant at, uh, at yes. Sound, of, Sound of Music. One of my favorites. I did two records. It's amazing like, engineer, yeah. amazing producer too. But like yeah. the sounds that he got was just like, woof. Shout he, out. To he John rode Morant. to work on a skateboard. 
literally. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> still does. I think like he's yeah. he's still like I, I see him every once in a while. It's like, dude, just still still doing it. And he just he just had a he had a, an amazing ability. Uh, I've gone back and listened. You know, we were talking earlier about going back. You know, twenty years and remembering a record you forgot you wrote. And and I hadn't listened to the the record, the full record we did there with him. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it on headphones and just this stuff that guy was doing. So, yep. so now I do a lot more mixing and, um, I've dipped my toe into mastering that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so spent the dark a, art, the dark, <laughs> spent many, many years <laughs> really, um, listening intently to, to sounds and production, mm-hmm. um, and seeing what other producers are doing. Like, like you would, if you're a musician to see what other musicians are doing and right. going back now, many, many years later, and listening to what John Morand had put together Dude. sonically on those records, just it was beautiful, amazing, really yeah. incredible ear. And he would just sit in front of that desk and kind of rock. When he's really digging mm-hmm. something, he'd kind of he'd really rock out. I've never seen a dude do session times like him either. Like we would, like everything recorded in there sometimes. And then I would come in with bands. And when, when I came in with bands, it was like, yep, you've got a day at Sound of Music. We're going to get all the drums done. And it's like, you know, we're trying to knock out 14, you know, drum tracks. So it's it's going to be a long day. And he would do like 14, 15, 16 hour days and just like engineer the entire time. Yeah. And even at the end of the day, be like, yeah, I think there's there's some weird like sibilance <laughs> on the on the ride. So let me go. Let me go check something out. Yeah. Man, and come back and be like, yeah, I think I got it. It's like, damn, dude. And he was, he was fast. And back, yeah. back in the, we were recording there, I guess, in the late 90s. So they were just sort of transitioning between the two-inch tape yeah. and the, they had some digital, I forget what they were called, but we Yeah, were, it was a weird, like, radar, maybe? Radar. Was, yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. it was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I spent a lot of time on that radar. And they'd record, what they like to do is record on the tape because yep. it got that warm sound and then they'd immediately dump it over to the radar. Yep. Yep. And it was, it looked kind of like an Atari. I don't know. Yep. In my mind, it was just, they were pressing some buttons and stuff was happening. Once it got to digital, it was a little confusing to me, mm-hmm. but so fast at, at editing and a sense of what was important and when it was time to move on, that kind yeah. of thing. That producer <clears throat> skill, which... Um... I don't know the the engineering thing. I mean, you have to learn that too. Just you know, like how to mic up a drum kit and and mm. how to avoid phase with the you know the bass drum and and the distance that you're you know the 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 waveforms of the the low end and all that stuff. But then yeah, producing is this whole other set of skills. Which I, as I started producing, I didn't know anything. I you know I'm good with people, but like you know like the the fine art of producing and and how to get yeah. A, a, group of people to make their best music together and sometimes that's like a very difficult tricky thing sometimes Mm. there's like politics and and that stuff like interpersonal stuff but other times it's just like you know somebody's just kind of blocked i learned a um steve lillywhite trick from uh i worked with stephen harris who who had Worked with Lily White and and then gone on to do some of uh, some Dave Matthews records of his own, and uh, he was like, "Yeah, Lily White would be back in the back, just like reading a newspaper or whatever." And, and the drummer just wasn't getting the performance, mm. and he would put down his newspaper and just be like, "Can can you have him tune the snare?" And the drummer would be like, "Oh yeah, let's check it out," and and it it would just take the drummer's mind off of the 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 work at hand for just a second. 
and then boom came back and you know first take you know wow little tricks like that where like that's production like that's the the art of being a producer you know yeah so and just for purposes of educational purposes describe the difference between an engineer and a producer and what the skill set would be and would you would you normally start as an en- engineer and grow into a producer or how, yeah. how, do you, how does that work yeah so so an engineer is the person in charge of all the knobs and and the sounds and the like the the miking stuff and and all of that and and this day you know like nowadays the like sometimes you don't have any of that like you just have a singer songwriter who's got like you know some daw on their computer and and that's that's all it is but in the, in the olden days or in in like the big budget days still which the the daw is the digital audio workstation yeah. and that's that's the interface nowadays for that's, recording studios that mimics a recording studio it yeah. looks and and frankly, I don't know how if you learn on a, a DAW mm-hmm. and you haven't been in a recording studio and understand the signal path. I'm not sure right. how. I guess you eventually learn how to use it. But I guess anyway, if anyways. you need to. I mean, like like I, I think a lot of uh, you know the the kids coming up now with just you know working in in their DAWs are are may never see a studio. Like it just you know right. like what do you need it for? But, but so uh, you've got you've got the engineer yep. micing stuff up and and you were talking about phase cancellation and that just has to do with if you put one microphone here and then put another microphone like one foot behind it then it they may capture the sound uh, at a different time in the wave one on top of the wave and one on the bottom of the wave and exactly. sort of knock out some some of the sound and all of a sudden basically bottom line is it sounds bad because you had the microphones placed poorly so it's it's yeah. engineering it literally is physics yep. and engineering and a good engineer makes a just a tremendous difference and i guess in the old days you would learn that uh, by by being an intern or yep. going to yeah, school yeah you would for come it? up and and take the trash cans out and and empty out the beer bottles and all that stuff and and just keep your eyes and ears open and 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 then come up and you know start with you know the miking up stuff that's easy to mic up like single mic stuff or go put that mic on the go put that SM57 in front of that Marshall stack where doesn't really matter you know it's just somewhere right. in front of it and then you know onto the finer points of of drum overheads and acoustic guitars and all that stuff. But yeah, so there's there. Yeah. It's the physics of sound and, and how sound moves through the air and bounces off the walls and then goes into the mic and then goes through the cables and all the processing of, of a board and, and the, you know, all of that stuff is all an engineer and a good engineer not only knows all the sound stuff, but all the electronic stuff too. Of, of mm. like, oh, this, this is uh, this this pot's dirty. You know, I need to like pull this pot out and like spray mm. the a pot is a sorry a pot is a the 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 knob that you turn on a on a mixing board. And and now if if you've got a DAW, you you still have the same you know graphical representation of that knob, but it's just a you know it's a it's a virtual knob. But it doesn't um, get dirty. It doesn't get dirty. You don't get dirty pots anymore. <laughs> but like you know to go get the spray stuff and spray out it and yeah. put it back in or solder stuff or like all of that. Mm. So that's an engineer. And then a producer is the the best ones have been engineers and so they speak that language, but they also speak the language of music. Mm. And they also like we were talking about, just have this magical, the, the main job of a producer, I think, is to put all of the players into the best possible space, headspace, literal space, virtual space, all of that 
in order to get the best possible performance out of them. And then, of course, there's there's with a with a label. If the la- if you you get into the politics and the right. dynamics of a label, and yeah. the label's trying to make a hot record for this band, and then they they assign you a producer, for mm. example, and yeah. your label's like, guess what? We've got this great producer for you that's going to really turn your sound around, so you guys can sell some records. How, how does did that ever happen to that everything? happened? I, it never happened well for us. I, I was going to say I'm sure it happens well for for some bands, and and like there are there are like you know great producers that when paired with like you know a Tom Petty like great albums like Wildflowers, you know. But um, I don't know for us like we weren't at that level where we were getting the Rick Rubens. So like mm. we were getting other people and I don't know, it never really gelled. Like we were, we were kind of a tricky band. Like we had a lot of different sort of personalities and, you know, we were everything, you know, one mm. of the things that we tried to do was live up to that name. That was like sort of a challenge of like mm. how many different genres can we mix up in one song and, and all that stuff. So I think that was uh it's tricky as a producer. One of the one of your other jobs, some producers do this, and and I don't really like it usually because it kind of ends up cookie cutter. But like um, like Jeff Lynne, for instance, like almost everything that Jeff Lynne uh, from ELO produces sounds like Jeff Lynne. It sounds mm-hmm. like you put it into this Jeff Lynne box and got and his I fingerprints think, on it. Yeah, and and I think so. So when you have a band that's so amorphous like we were i think there's this tendency for a producer to be like okay i like this part of what you're doing so let's do that you know and and i don't know we kind of bristled at that we i don't know we the the producers that we picked um we were much more excited about and and the producer that that took us across the finish line and and a hit song and all that stuff was jim ebert a guy that we had known for forever he was part of the virginia scene like I think every single one of those bands that you mentioned, yeah, he, he did a record for. So you know, like that was um, we just we trusted him. You know, I think that's the biggest thing is we just we uh, we had a great relationship with him. Well, it's an art form. It's it's an extension. It's it's a different medium. Playing on stage is one thing, and getting your live show straight and figure out how to play in front of people and read the room and feel the room and deliver yeah. and whatnot. And then you get in the recording studio, and it's a totally different medium. And yeah. the the producer is really an extension of the band. It's a creative component, and it not all creators get along. It's it's hard enough in a band mm-hmm. when you've spent right. years together, but then you're then you're thrust a new person that you don't know very well. Yeah. And you're like, do we get along creatively with this person? I don't know. Right. Yeah. And just all the politics of that, where it's like, well, why do you like his ideas? You've picked three of his ideas and you (laughs) haven't even picked one of mine yet. You know, (laughs) what's going on here? There was was an interview with the Eagles or something. And they were talking about like, they're like, you know what? We probably just should have put you know, where we've got 10 Don Henley songs and we've got, you know, three left, we probably just should have done 13 Don Henley songs mm-hmm, or something, right? you know, <laughs> but if the other guys have to get their song to, and these are, in, in that case, yeah, I mean, yeah, these yeah. are, these Monsters. are all stars yeah. and, and you've, you're dealing with someone who's, who's such a great songwriter. Right. Um, and, and all the drugs. <laughs> yeah, well, then there's that. Yeah. Geez. Right. On top of everything else, um, it's just a swirl of chaos, and and yeah. in some case that that chaos just breeds such brilliance. Yeah, um, right. I was always amazed at 
you know, one thing about musicians, there, there's a lot of things that musicians don't do very well, uh, mm -hmm. responsibility and right. showing up on right. time and certain, maybe certain things like that. But, but, but there's a, there's a discipline that musicians have with their craft that I think is unparalleled. Yeah. Really great musicians can trick you because you think that they're, um, laid back Right. Don't about about a lot of Everything's things. Everything's all improvised and like, hey, yeah. man, cool. You Whatever. Know? I'll just sort of show up and play. Yeah. But, but the, you know, the 10,000 hours yeah. and the drilling on their instrument and the frustration and the working hard. Um, and, you know, going back to your, you know, playing many, many instruments um, and, and the dedication when you get started on something to follow something through. What, what was it about? instruments and music that kept you going week after week that's easy it was just passion like i've never loved anything like i've loved making creating music you know and and this is it's something that i think again like we don't we don't do a good job of teaching music if we don't let kids tap into that part of it where it's like mm. I'm making something that I love, you know, like even if it's just a beat on a drum machine or, or whatever that is, like I totally connect with this. And, and like, what if other people like it too? Look at that. Like, you know, this beat mm -hmm. on a drum machine I made and now like the, you know, everybody's dancing, you know, like, like I think there's just something so powerful about that. And then, like you said too, like, it's funny cause, um, education now is coming around to like five C's or, you know, 21st century skills. Five C's are like creativity, collaboration, communication, uh, critical thinking, citizenship. You know, these are the things that um, instead of the SOLs where it's like, you know, what we teach in school when we were growing up and, and sort of in the last 20 years has been like, you know, the Louisiana Purchase. What's the date of the Louisiana Purchase? I don't know. But it's on my phone. It's two clicks away. Like right. one, two, boom, there it is. And and the thing that um, schools and, and our education system is finally coming around to is like the stuff that actually matters is those soft skills, the 21st century skills, the ability to create and collaborate with a group of people. Mm. And that kind of stuff is like, that's what we did when we were in bands. And that's mm. what, you know, we did relentlessly because we were so passionate about it, you know? And I think giving kids, that's, that's, you know, again, like this is what we're doing with Light the Music is we're bringing creativity and collaboration to music education because that's what matters. Like that's the, that's the thing that will engage kids and that's the thing that is going to give them this set of skills that's like, like superpowers for the rest of their lives, you know? Yeah, let's talk about that. Light the music, um, and is is let, describe it to me. Is it a is it a system? Is it a software platform? Um, is it a coaching tool? Is it a teacher's aid? What what is it it's, exactly? It's all of the above, and and it's really interesting because right. pre COVID it was one thing, and now it's it's another thing. And and the thing that's the thing that's underneath that that's always been there is my unshakable belief that if you give kids the ability to create music that that just throws the doors open of mm. engagement and learning and like kids are like yep what do you want to do like 
what do I need to learn in order to keep doing this? You know, and it's like, oh, well, let's talk about the families of instruments. Okay, cool. Like I get to do stuff with strings and horns and, and percussion and, you know, like, so it's, um, that's the, the sort of the tenet that runs through Light the Music. Light the Music has been around for 10 years. Um, so, so the, the real quick story is after everything, um, we had a hit song and then almost immediately became one hit wonders because of, uh, the early two thousands were the beginning of the, the record label mergers and acquisitions. And so we got basically just merged and bought out of our, of our label, uh, which was Sire records. And, um, mm -hmm. so that was the end of it. That was the, the end of our, our amazing ride. And then for 10 years, that was when I was doing production and all the stuff we've been talking about, um, engineering, writing my own music. And what I really got into kind of like midway through that was um, writing music to picture. So hmm. commercials, film and television, stuff on like CSI, um, lots and lots of commercials. And that's that's how I made a living. And, and um, I loved it. It's, it's a fantastic challenge, mm. very fast paced and very fun and very challenging. Mm. But the only way you win is if you keep jumping higher and faster than, than all those other composers. And then now all these other library tracks. And, and at that point, I was just like, you know what? It's been 10 years. It's been awesome. And so I started sort of looking about for what I was And in the interim, next. you just added massively to your skill stack. Yeah. Talking with, talking with a, uh, a, a, a producer at an at a ad agency who is the music producer who doesn't speak the language of music. And yet mm -hmm. they're the mm -hmm. person that's like telling you what to do. And you're like, okay, well, let's, let's work through this. There's a, there's <laughs> yeah, a, right. a, there's a really, really great story about, um, when we, I, I did the music for, um, acts when they did bomb Chickawawa. So there was like this whole oh, thing. Sweet. They did this. It was a really great viral campaign where they created the song with that word in it and then did commercials based on that word. And so mm. they, they, it was one of the early really successful viral campaigns. And so they were looking for this really dicey blend of like sort of sexy and funny. And, and so the, the, the writers kept changing the lyrics of the song. And so the last revision, the eighth revision was after they had spent half a million dollars shooting this amazing music video for this song. After they shot the video and had it in the can, they sh they sent the edit and I was like, oh man, that's great. Like you guys really went all out on this thing. This is really cool. I'm psyched, you know? And they were like, well, we got to change the lyrics. And I was like, what? Oh, no. I didn't, I said, I said what like that inside my head, right outside my head. I said, oh, okay. What do you need? You know? But, um, that's just, wow. that's that business. Yeah. Well, you know? right. And but anyway, yeah. So 10 years ago, um, I did not know what to do. Yeah. It took a while, but I finally landed on this idea that with uh, with smartphones and, and touchscreen technology, I, w I didn't see an app that combined sounds and visuals in a way that made it like really intuitive where you would touch the screen and you'd be like, yep, that's the sound, that's the visual, and that would loop and then that would make music. And so I, I had this idea for what became the Oro Visual Music app. And then, you know, I just had to like find people with money and pitch them and find a good developer who could do that. And all of that's super easy to do, no problem. And it took about yeah. five, five yeah. years. 
I mean, the music, the music portion is, is one thing and that's, you've got this, you know, decades of experience and, right. and expertise and then, but then, and you've got a great idea, but then mm. working in a totally different field yeah. with, with software engineers and technology. Yeah. And I, I don't know how and you startups, you I mean, just that, that whole, yeah, the whole like investors, you know, like getting, all of that yeah. stuff was just like this whole deals, new, whole, I, I suppose, yeah. cause most startups fail. So you've got all these yep. deals and lawyers yeah, and totally. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was, um, and and it was, uh, I was really well prepared for it. Just like we were talking about, like you know, making music in a group of in a group of people and collaborating and all of that stuff. Basically, you know, the the '90s for us being in a band, that was a startup. You know, mm. our our build, mm. test, learn cycle was 24 hours. You know, right. we would try something one night and talk about it later. You know, over some beers and be like that totally sucked when we played that song and everybody <laughs> left, like the entire dance right. floor cleared out that let's never do that again, you know? So that, um, and then just dealing with people too, like the, the HR part of that and, and mm. being in a band is hard. Being on the road is hard. Like that's, yeah. it's not easy. And, and so there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of, uh, you know, just working with it. And we lived together. Like our band lived in, in a house out in the country. So we, we had to work stuff out, but so, there were some ways that I was pretty well prepared to um, start a startup and and um, kind of keep working towards this goal and and keep getting told no and keep just you know keep at it. And so we launched that app, um, Oro O R O Visual Music. It's free on the App Store. It still is up there. And the original idea, the original thing, the model, the business model that we pitched was anybody can make music. There's two billion smartphones in the world so that's two billion musical instruments we give anybody the power to create music like we're just going to count money that's going to be our job you know right and uh and it failed it uh it we we had like through this was um me and craig worked on it um craig is the lead singer and and main songwriter of of the band everything and so we've been sort of brothers from another mother for 30 years and so he's my co-founder and uh, we That's had a really awesome. good, great network, and and he's got great um, sort of marketing and and digital, uh, digital marketing chops now. Yeah. So we we had a good launch, and and like there were you know three or four thousand downloads in the first month, and then uh, we saw those three or four thousand people like sort of slowly stop using the app over the mm -hmm. course of a month, and and then you know like oh we got to get more people in, and never uh, never got it to a point where it was sticky enough that like it that curve started going the other way. Right. And at that same point, and this is another great lesson from being in a band, but there were all these, there have been all these people along my path for, you know, the last 10 years, especially that were like, Oh yeah, I used to see you back in the day in ocean city. And one of these guys was, um, he's the president of a school for kids with autism here mm. in town called Faison. And this guy, Brian McCann, another mutual friend of ours said, oh, yeah, you should go talk to Brian. And and uh, he's an old fan of the band. And I was like, cool. So I, I went and talked to him. And it was just like, you know, just like bro hang, you know. Right. And he was like, what are you doing with this app? And I was like, you know, it's like you can make music with it. And he was like, well, do you think our kids could use it? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, we need somebody to teach music to these kids. I was like, okay. You know? Yeah. So, and I, I went and observed their music class and 
they don't the those those schools like especially private school for kids with special needs they don't have the budget for a full-time music teacher that's right. just not that's not and 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 a lot of schools don't right and and the other thing with with kids with special needs is like they can't really you know like clarinet's not going to be a great option you know and a, right. a band is not going to be a great option but these kids like went crazy on the app like mm. the first day i was in there i had kids like jumping up and down like you got to hear mm. this music i played you know i was just like oh okay this is gonna work and so then it was just a matter of of making curriculum that sort of tied into the different content sets etc cetera, etc cetera. and this is all pre-covid right yes. now so that's like a, yeah flash forward from like five years ago to covid and and in the last um like basically like a year ago, everything caught fire. We were part of an accelerator. We hired a full-time salesperson. Our, What's an accelerator? Uh, an accelerator is like a startup program. Uh, it's a program for startups that like they give you some money and they give you like all the right people to come in and like look at your business model and and do you need funding? Let's get you a good pitch deck. Let's all the just all the stuff. It's like a manager. Yeah, like who's they just good, who's like good at it and doesn't drink too much. Right, right. They just they just hot rod your your startup basically, okay. they, like an accelerator. They, it's like nitrous, you know. Like they, yeah. you just like, and um, I presume so, they have connections. And, totally. Yeah, like mm-hmm. all that. And so, um, so we went through that program and uh, just came out of it like forexed, and our projections for this year were to 4x again. Awesome. There was just the sky was the limit. Like we these specialty private schools need music programming and we had this this program that like, you know, that kids even severely disabled kids could could make music, which was just like, you know, like just win 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 all over the place, right? It's it's so funny because it's like I'm I'm back to fourth grade me. It's like, hey, Steve, you really love music. And I'm like, yeah, really, really, really love music. Okay, here's the deal. I'm going to give you this instrument. It's a clarinet. It's not really cool or anything, but like it's a musical instrument. It's like, cool, I'll take it. Now, you got to, like, for two or three years, you got to work your butt off just to make this thing sound like okay so that your brothers aren't laughing at you because you squeaked, right? (laughs) Two or three years of that, right? And if and and you have to learn this like completely abstract language, right? So the um, notes on the you know every good boy does fine, all that stuff. Your reward for doing all that work is you get to play band music, <laughs> right? And I was like, yep, I'm in. But but we lose about eighty percent of kids um, by the time they're in high school. They're just like, yeah, I'm not in. And so not, not into playing in then the like symphonic orchestra. Yeah, I'm band not into. Thing. Yeah. I'm not into the music education paths that are presented for me, you know? And I think that's a huge shame because so many kids really would engage with music if we gave them the right path. When I was in middle school, we had the best, maybe the best teacher in the whole school was the, was the band teacher. And when, and my best friend was a year older than me and he played the tuba Mm -hmm. in band and i thought it was the coolest thing ever and so when i came into sixth grade i wanted to play the tuba and i was really tall for my age so it worked out Mm -hmm. because when we did marching band i could carry the sousaphone yeah yeah, and for whatever reason he was an unbelievably good motivator so everybody Mm -hmm. loved playing and he would take you know, a bunch of sixth graders who couldn't make any music together. Yeah. And at the end of the year, lo and behold, it was like, wow, yeah, that's pretty darn good. They're yeah. all playing different things. They're, they they know how to read music. They know what key signatures are. 
Um, they, you know, they understand that if it's in concert C, you play right. a, a G, or B flat, you yeah, play yeah. a G on the sax or whatever it is. Right. Totally. Um, so, and then, so, but I would sit back there on the tube and I'd be watching the drummers. And then in, <laughs> in jazz band in eighth grade, if you were really, really good in, in the band, you got to be in the jazz band, yeah. which was where you played the quote unquote cool music. Oh yeah. Um, but there's no tuba in jazz band. So I was like, I got to do something. So I learned how to play bass guitar, right. but I, but I learned how to play bass guitar by learning how to play guitar. And it was the point at which I learned guitar that it was it, it was all over. Yeah. For for me. Yeah. Um, but that was sort of a, a a long digression into just sort of um, it's funny how our experiences sort of matched in some ways. But I when you talk about being in band and playing a clarinet and squeaking and how somehow that's amazing just to listen to your instrument kind of mesh with all the other instruments and doing yeah. different things to make a piece of music um that's that you can be really proud of as one cog in a wheel yeah but then it, it sort of peters out at, around high school it does and 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 a lot of kids just at some point they just put the instrument down and and it's it's done like you mm -hmm. know i'm not a, a lot of like i, I don't know I would be I would be really curious to see what the numbers are, but like you know the the amount of kids that like put a lot of time and energy into an instrument and then just put it down and, and never looked back, you know, and and so mm -hmm. if if we can convince these educators, if we can show them how engaged kids can be by creating music, so our program, what light the music, um, we're launching this in schools right now. The program is. We take a class of, of music students, break them into like little four-person bands. They get to pick a stage name. They get to pick their band name. Mm -hmm. And then they go through this series of challenges, like creative challenges, where they're working in a DAW called Soundtrap, which is like a, a, a web-based um, DAW that's super accessible. You know, you can do it on your Chromebook. And they make music. So like, you know, we start off, everybody makes a beat in the drum machine. That's pretty easy. And then everybody does something with the keyboard instrument. That's a little more, more difficult. And then in Soundtrap, like I can make a beat and then you do the bass line over it. And then I do the chords over it. And then you do the melody over it. And, and so we've, we've been testing it over the summer and kids are, you know, as you can imagine, you know, even just picking a stage name and, and being in a band and like, that's just like, it's fun, you know, like that's the most fun I've ever had was the stuff that I did in a band, you know? Yeah. When you're in sixth grade and you come in with your instrument and there's like 50 other kids and like mm -hmm. all of a sudden you create this thing together and it's like, that doesn't sound too bad. Like that's an amazing experience. So yeah. that, that collaboration and that like community of collaborators and that safe space to do that and, and to kind of be a little weird, you know, like that's mm -hmm. all of that stuff is, is, is all the stuff that we've looked at that's like really crucial for, for like the music to, to capture and then to give, to empower these music educators to be able to deliver that experience, which is a whole other thing for them too. You know, well, and that's that's all all goes to the, you know talking about being weird. That all goes to the creativity component, mm -hmm. which is critical. As I've gone from you know one discipline to another to another in totally. my life's trajectory, creativity is one skill that I learned at a very early age playing in bands, 
where you're trying to one up each other and bring something new to the table um, and out create the other. And it was funny as you were talking about the idea of little little groups of four people getting together and naming their band. And you know, I, I experienced this firsthand with with any number of bands that I played mm -hmm. with when I was growing up. It sounds like you did too. But that excitement, I mean, already I can feel that excitement about let's let's do something cool. Totally. And there's, it's such a motivator as opposed to let's just learn, a, you know, a concert B flat scale or whatever. Yeah. Or this, this like method book piece that's like, you know, the turkey in the straw or whatever it is. It's, it's like, dun, I, don't, dun, I, don't, dun, dun, I don't know the dun. turkey in the straw. Right. I mean, just, just all of that stuff. And, and I think, you know, the thing is, um, the other piece of this is like, this is not an easy time for people, you know, this mm. is, there's, this is difficult yeah. and there's a lot of stress. Um, kids don't get to hang out with each other as much. And, and, you know, school is fun there, you know, school parts of school are not fun, but like there's a social aspect that's so crucial right. for kids. And, and so I think the other thing that, that I'm just super stoked about right now is that bringing some of that, to kids, you know, to not only to connect on a, on a really fun, creative thing, but also to be making music, which is, you know, joyous and, and so good for your soul. Like I, it, there's, I'm just really, really excited that, that, um, that we're able to be doing this right now and, and to be able to, you know, maybe change music education, but also just like bring some some joy into to kids worlds you know and and give them these tools you know give them this what, like this springboard to all of that stuff you know yeah i like the 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 reference to a springboard it seems like that if you get interested i i taught guitar for a couple of years among many of the other gazillion things mm -hmm. i've done in music and one of the things that i discovered teaching guitar was the the goal just really became to try to get someone to come back next week. Right. At a point, at a certain point, if you can make the person come back, mm -hmm. at some point you'll get that bug. Yeah. And when the student would get that, that was my goal was to get them to yeah. come back every week until something in them clicked where they said, oh, this is really cool. I want to do this better. And then all of a yeah. sudden there's this motivator inside of a musician or any person yeah. to just become better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I think everybody has different passions, of course, but I've seen this personally that like so many kids have a passion for music, you know, and we just, there's this wonderful opportunity to, to leverage that passion and just be like, okay, cool. Like whatever that music is that you like, that, that is like the, like your jam, you know, like there's a mm. way to like take that apart and understand the music theory of it and the sounds and the production of it. And yeah, that's when music really stuck for me when I was, um, in kindergarten, I, I took piano lessons, hated it. Um, because it was sort of the the old style, and I was right. just too young, and Same. Didn't, it didn't work for me. Oh, um, I had a piano I was, teacher, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't until it was cool and exciting, and my friends were doing it. You know, to, to your point about collaborating and having it be social and creative, yep. and then I got with. Then we formed a band in sixth or seventh grade or something like that and it mm -hmm. became a club and then it was cool and then all of a sudden we played our first show mm -hmm. in front of 
it was at a it was at a middle school dance and we only knew three and a half songs and um the half song the half yeah, song what was, was the half song the half song was um still of the night by white snake oh yeah yeah nice <laughs> and and it was so it was so difficult that by at about about a third of the way through or halfway through when we got to the bridge we, we just it was too difficult we couldn't play it anymore mm-hmm. so we only learned yeah doesn't it get like first... really riffy at yeah, that point? yeah 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 and like so time was, signature stuff yeah. it was not good it was not good but we played um some easier songs but we played um at the middle school dance um in between the dj sets and it was nice. the first time anyone had ever seen a band play and and luckily we don't have any record of that show because i'm sure it was just terrible but my recollection of it i'm telling you i was i might have been might have might as well have been going up at madison square garden up totally. on stage and in front of playing fifty thousand people it was yeah. epic it totally. was i knew at that point i was 11 and a half or something i thought now i know, I know what i want to do with my life the skies opened up and this yes. beam of light was just like yeah totally it really was and that was that was the bug and and so then playing guitar and playing in bands and making music and writing music how when did you start writing music like high school um maybe even junior high it was the same thing like late nights like scribbling stuff and i had like a a little keyboard that had like you know the beats and the chords and stuff and so i was like putting together stuff and were you playing guitar at that point i started I, i picked up the guitar like i think it was probably like my junior year of High school. My buddy in in those damn kids, uh, he played guitar, and and I was like, dude, can I try it out? And uh, he was like, yeah, sure. We would um we would practice every Saturday um, at Mark's house. He was our keyboard player. He was in everything as well, Mark Reinhardt. But um, his dad's house had a pool, and we would go over on Saturdays, mm-hmm. and like we would play some music. Then we would order pizza, mm-hmm. and and it, it was always Pepsi, never Coke, because um, Mark Mark liked Pepsi. So we would have like pepperoni pizzas and Pepsi and then swim and then like come back maybe for a second, you know, jam session. But in that like in that pizza pool time, I was like, I don't you know, like I like pizza. I'll have some pizza, but like I'm back on the instruments like, you know, Mm. and that was when I started messing around with my buddy's guitar. And like guitar is uh, I don't know, there's something about it where it's like it's really physical and. And then there's distortion where it's just mm-hmm. like, it's powerful, mm-hmm. you know? And that, as soon as I started messing with it, I was just like, oh, this one, you know, this instrument. And yeah. then, you know, the more and more I got into, you know, into college, I, my poor college roommate freshman year, um, didn't know what he was getting into. We were just like thrown together and, and uh, like, it was finals week and like music finals are pretty easy. You know, you've got those scary auditions that you have to do, but like, you know, that's about it. Mm. And he's like over there studying and I'm just like noodling, 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 noodling. I'm learning like uh-huh. REM riffs and, you know, On the like, guitar. and he's like, Steve, buddy, can you give that a rest, buddy? <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> but, uh, but, and then like, you know, and then we started playing shows and, and like... But were you playing mostly guitar? Would you say guitar is your main yeah. instrument now? Now And now, yeah. Like if if uh, if you put me on stage, yeah, give me a guitar and I feel pretty good. Um, I, I've, I've put in, I don't know, like it's probably like 30,000 hours on guitar. It's ridiculous, but... You had had the training 
for really kind of classical, I guess, training or band, symphony training on on clarinet and and clarinet right. and saxophone share most of the same fingerings. Yeah, kind of. They, they they it's it's like left hand or it's something. It's like like Spanish and Portuguese or something. You know, okay. it's it's like once you know one, then then you you can pretty quickly get to the next one. Flute, same thing, and then yeah, and so I was. Uh, I was a drum major at our in, in in high school at at Annandale High School. So my senior year, I was like the 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 co leader of the marching band. Um, and so I went to um, best music school in in Virginia. And I landed in composition and theory because I wanted to make music. And so I was a like composition theory major. Were you doing composing with? any symphonic kinds of instruments were you yeah. composing on guitar or what all were you doing it. all of yeah. it i had the the most wonderful composition professor um as my mentor um dr john hilliard he just recently passed away but he um his whole ethos was you come with whatever it is that you want to bring into the world musically mm. and um I was like, well, I'm into like, I'm into this band that I'm playing, like, you know, kind of pop songs and stuff with. And he like, he came out to our practices and he gave me tips on like how to arrange the horn section and and like, oh, you guys are doing a perfect fifth there. And then it's all parallel fifths. It'll sound better if you like do the voicings a bit different, like all kinds of like music theory stuff that there's a reason for those rules. It sounds better, you know, like, so you guys were, this is so in college at JMU and you guys had started in college yep. or right before college. Yeah. In yeah. college. There were a couple of the guys that were in the, the band in high school. And then as we came to college, the, the guy that, um, Dave Slankard, our, our bass player, um, he lived on in, in a different dorm and on the hall that he lived, uh, this guy, Craig, was renowned for taking his acoustic guitar into the bathroom and like just hanging out and like, you know, working stuff out in the bathroom. And uh, <laughs> Dave was like, you guys got to meet this guy. And so that was that was how everything was born. So, yeah, we started and then I think we got in like three or four years at JMU of like just practicing and um Playing well, now you open guys, mics and stuff. You guys, so yeah, and we we have we we have to talk about the beast. We got to talk about Hooch. But before we get there, right you guys, before before any of that happened, now is it? You got to tell me if this is right. You guys sold thirty thousand records, yeah. or thereabouts of your first three records before um, you ever had any. Yeah, you know, infrastructure Before, like a label or a yeah. management or anything like that. We had a we had a manager. Randy Reed um, was our manager when we came out of JMU in '92. Um, we came out the like we we made some moves. We we rented this farmhouse out in the country where we all started living, and it was like six hundred bucks a month. And and there were like at some point there were like twelve of us living there. I think so. It was it was pretty pretty good deal. And it was way out in the country, so we could be noisy at any time of the day or night. And um, we brought on Randy as our manager. And Randy ended up, like, again, like, after everything, um, he works for Red Light Management now. Red Light is Corn Capshaw's company. Yeah. So, like everything that Corn touched, um, you know, whether it was a merch company or a management company, like, everything that needed to serve the Dave Matthews band, he built, like, a 
a, a proprietary version of it and and it turned into right. also something like record label just everything you know yeah but um so a- randy ato ato yeah records. yeah but anyway so we um so you guys are out in the country yeah. living in this house jamming playing yep and uh and what was the point of that what was and, the well question? i was talking about how you guys got you know, you recorded the first record, oh, you, had, you had the first three records, and they're just... So right. I remember in the 90s, um, the, 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 the path was, and we learned this, in, so in Virginia, there's all these bands that are just forging this path, like I was talking about earlier, before Dave Matthews, um, you know, did their thing. Yeah. I remember the rule was, if you can sell 10,000 records, or even maybe five, but if you right. could sell 10,000 records on your own... De- that definitely equals record deal. That yeah, was kind of signed. one of the that was one of the formulas, and so yeah. I thought, all right, well, let's just go out and sell ten thousand records. How hard can that be, right? right. But um, but to sell th- so to sell thirty, just to put that in context, I mean, back then with with no distribution, right. and that was in an era where you couldn't really distribute stuff yourself. You're just selling you're selling CDs it's of shows, shows basically, yeah. and maybe consignment at some local stores or whatever. Yeah. But thirty thousand records is 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 nuts man for a college band that's basically just going and playing shows so yeah. it, that must mean that that, that to show that you're playing lots of shows and people were showing up and it, was, it must have felt like you were you were sort of at a liftoff kind of place or it must have been really cool yeah it was it was you know our whole track was very um you know there were there were you know ups and downs but it was very like like it was it was just a track of growth, you know, and, and part of that, like, you know, hats off to Randy for being a fantastic manager and, and, you know, our, the people that we surrounded ourselves with. And, and the other thing was like, our work ethic was like, we were just, that's what we were doing. You know, people, we would do interviews and people would be like, you know, what do you, you know, what's your, what's your goal? You know, we were, we were like world domination. That was our answer. It wasn't even a question. It was just like, yep, we're, we're like going for broke here. But we just, there was nothing that we, you know, if we were broke down on the side of the road, we weren't like giving up. We were figuring out a way to like find a pay phone and open, uh, find somebody who was open on a Saturday afternoon to come and put our van and trailer on their flatbed and drive us in the van and trailer, which is illegal, to Atlanta so that we could play the show. Like that literally happened. Like we just. Where'd you guys play when you came to Atlanta? Oh, everywhere. Um, Fox Theater in Atlanta was like a... Oh, yeah. But we started off playing in like Buckhead where I can't even remember the name of the club, but like some... There was a place called... Was it Brandy House? There was a... That was sort of a... A lot of jam bands played there, but there was also Smith's Old Bar. Smith's Old Bar was great. Yeah. Yeah. But we first started playing in Buckhead. um, I can't remember the name of the place, but... uh, The Roxy, I'll bet. Roxy, I think Roxy was like a step up still from where we started. Um, but yeah, Smith's Old Bar, we had amazing times, like played with Aquarium Rescue Unit. and, and Oh yeah, another another great band, oh, definitely. Yeah, oh my God, dude, those guys. That's the best, that's the best group of musicians. And they've all gone on, like it's O'Teal and Jimmy Herring and Jeff Sipe, um, like the best musicians I've ever yeah. seen in a band together. Like yeah. bar none, like yeah. amazing and the stuff that they would do together as a band was just like jaw dropping. <laughs> I saw O'Teal was playing with, um, you know, Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi mm-hmm. formed, you know, the super band, mm-hmm. uh, being married and whatnot. Yeah. And O'Teal was playing bass with them one yeah. time, and it's sick, man. It's the, and to watch Dude. them all, watch that show is just mind blowing. Yeah, 
You talked about masters, you know, and, and the, the music, you know, mastery. And it goes back to what we were talking about with Leroy, too, that, like, you can get to a point where you can shred with the best of them, especially guitar players get to this point. But mastery is, like, one step past that where, like, you know when to play and, like, how you're serving the, the music. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and, like, man, those guys, all of them. Big ears, big ears, and super humble. Like the mm. the, it's funny yeah. because like as being in 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 bands and then as a producer, I've worked with a lot of musicians and and rubbed rubbed elbows with with just a ton of musicians, and the best ones are always like the sweetest people, like just so humble and sweet and just like, oh hey man, what's up, you know? Right. And then John Durth. Yeah, totally. Like, what a joy to work with. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, a, the amazing trumpet player. He's one of the guys where, like, you never had to do another take because you needed to get it right. You would just do another take because you'd be like, all right, now see what you can do. You know? Right. It was never, like, yeah. pitchy or anything. It was just always perfect, but it was like, well, let's try another one. Just, you know, see what happens. Well, and John Durth and anyone ever who played with him. Yeah. Like those dudes, yeah. um, we would go to Miller's yeah. see John Durth play on Thursdays. I, I'd go all the time oh, yeah. on Thursdays at Miller's and watch yeah. John Durth playing with the the regular cast. But then any musician, literally people just yep. show up with, with their horn yeah. and get on stage and play. And the, and the scariest thing of all time is just getting up there with those guys and hanging because yeah. it was it, it was just just the best. And all of those guys, super nice to your point, to your point, super nice guys. Um, but so, all right. So then you guys are playing and then, um, and, and (laughs) trying to get the story here, aren't you? The, 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 you know, the beast emerges is born. Tell me about writing that song and tell me about, did you release it? And was it an immediate hit or how did it work? At what point did the song sort of take on a life of its own? And what was that like? So, that song, um, Craig wrote that song um, sort of in, in two places. One was uh, the back porch of the house that we lived out in the middle of the country, the old, the old farmhouse, the band house. And then um, also in our shuttle bus, which was our, our sort of vehicle at the time, on one of our jaunts out to Colorado. And... Um, as a, as a song, it, it first lived as an acapella thing that we did in the middle of Soulfish. And so it was like this doo-wop, like four-part harmony thing, you know, where we're all like, who got the hooch? And it was like four-part harmonies and all that. And that was how it lived up until we recorded um, the record with, with Jim Ebert and the way we recorded that record, so first of all, we got signed, um, we had gotten signed to Capricorn Records and it just didn't work out well at all. Mm. It was that whole thing where they picked a producer and it was just ugh, nasty. Which is lucky. which is too bad because what a great record label. Right. And and like Cake was was doing really good stuff and, and like that would have been like we we were not far from like what they were doing kind of aesthetically and, and kind right. of, you know, fun and but anyway, uh, just didn't work out. And so that's after the three records, like back to my formula. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 30,000 30, records, yeah. sweet record deal. The, and uh, then you, let's you see. made that. You made which record under Capricorn? So we actually. The funny thing was, and and this is uh, for for bands that are just getting started. 
we had a formula. So the syllables, the number of syllables in the title of the record is the is the 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 number of the album. So Labrador was our third record, and nice. um, that was the one that we got signed to Capricorn. We had already made the record. Um, Doug Derryberry and John Alasia, who both went on to oh, do yeah. amazing stuff, they produced it, and um, so it was done. And we had like like the artwork, everything was done, done, done. And and so when we got signed, they were like, "We're just going to distribute it. We're going to like take it and, and run with it." You know, they right. they bought it, and 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 away we went. And literally, I and that was Labrador. That was Labrador. And literally, like six months after we had signed the deal, they still didn't have it out. We were just like, what are you guys doing? We just, we handed you the football and we were on the one yard line. Like what happened? <laughs> yeah. So that was like, we just weren't happy with, with, with them. I always um, say that the music business is not good at paperwork. <laughs> and that's probably, sort of you know, and, and like, you know, uh, I, we were just some young upstart band and, and I don't know, like they had widespread and they had cake and, and probably a bunch of other bands that were ahead of us in the sort of the priority well it list. started that was wave two right it started with almond brothers yeah 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 that was like first, capricorn the, the first one. wave yeah, yeah. But there was an awesome second wave with all those bands yeah totally so so and yeah, we just so, we were like we were like the sand underneath those waves apparently because like it just didn't work out and so like a year into that deal we were getting ready to record and they were throwing us like in front of these producers where like mm. we kept like auditioning their producer choices and we'd be like, Nope. Mm. Um, and, and we just, we pulled out of it. We were just like, Hey, you know what? Like, can we just like no blood, no foul, you guys keep the record and we'll, we'll move on. So mm. that's what happened with Labrador. Um, but anyway, so, oh, so that's, so that's their, that's their record. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then, so that was the third record. And so the then, fourth record was everything, which uh, the, the syllable thing gets a little dicey because if you say it fast, it sounds like three syllables. But anyway, and that was a live record. We did that ourselves. And then um, this guy, uh, Billy Lehman, saw us play in New York and he had a little record, a little indie. Where were you playing in New York? Probably it was either the Wetlands or yeah. uh, or not Irving Plaza. What was the other smaller place? Uh, Bowery. Bowery Ballroom. Yeah, and uh, he saw us play, and he came backstage, and he was like, "Yeah, I got this little label," and he was independently funded, so like he just like he was like, "If I like you guys, you guys get to do whatever you want to do, and I want to sign you, and like you know, I want you guys to make the record that you want to make." So that was when we made Supernatural with Jim Ebert. And that was the, and we really, we were at that, at a point where, you know, this is like 97, I guess. Yeah, it was 97 because um, it was the 10 year anniversary of my high school uh, graduation. And so I, this is a funny story. So we're recording and I guess it's like late summer, early fall. And I tracked um, that little riff, that do 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 be name on the yeah. uh, um, nylon string guitar, and then and then Jim was like, "I'm just gonna play the loop, and you just like mess around and noodle and do a bunch of stuff, and I'll like find some loops and and put some stuff together." Um, and and the song was written, you know, like the song was written. Uh, this was just for my part. So, You're just working on the production at this point. Of yeah, so we're, yeah. we're we're tracking hooch, and uh, and so 
I did that. And I was like, I've got like an hour, like you, you can have me for an hour. I'll, I'll do as many takes as you want. And then I got to go like, you know, to my high school reunion. And I went and like had a great time, you know, partied with, with people I hadn't seen for a long time. And I came back on like Sunday and my guitar track was done. You know, that riff that like, I knew the riff, like the riff was the thing that, that that's what I brought to the song. And so that right. was in there, but like all the other stuff is all just like me kind of noodling and Jim and, and his engineer chopping it which up. Is, which is, it which is an amazing riff. I mean, you know it from the first note. It's yeah, cool. I, it's, 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 it's just cool. Thank you. I, I, I don't know, you know, where that stuff comes from. Mm -hmm. So the, from, from where it was like this acapella thing that we did, Jim was like, we're going to make this a song. And, and the whole intention with this record that we made was that this is our shot. Like we've been on the road right. for long enough to know that like, there are things that work really well live. Mm -hmm. And then there's like this, you know, stuff that works really well on the radio. And guess what? The radio and MTV and all that stuff, that's the gateway. That's the, that's right. the, that's the pole vault, you know, like we can keep grinding it out on the road. That's great. But like, let's get some songs on the radio, like, like our friends in the Dave Matthews band. Let's do that. Like Hootie and the Blowfish. Like let's, you because know, let's in, in that. that era, as a reminder, I mean, that's pre essentially pre intents and purposes, yeah. pre-internet. Yeah. So you couldn't just distribute your music to an audience. If there were people listening to it, you had to get up to the very tippy top in the, in the upper echelons of a large record label or some some corporate entity that could put to essentially force you onto radio yeah. and once you were on radio and MTV it just it just flew off the shelves but yeah. you couldn't get organically on really for all intents and purposes onto radio or onto MTV yeah very few bands got any kind of mass um success without going through those gatekeepers and those gatekeepers were super narrow like they, you, you had to fit in a format, you know, you had to fit in a radio format. You had to be cool enough for MTV. We filmed the first video for Hooch. We did it all ourselves and like, it was really cool. It's, it's still the, the best video for Hooch, but it wasn't cool enough for MTV. Like they were just mm. like, no, nope, we're not going to play this. <laughs> like what? You, you were 20 years too early or whatever that okay go video was. <laughs> right. Where, yeah, they did it themselves. They do. Yeah. Oh, they do great stuff. But, but so like the, um, that, that intention was there from from the beginning and jim you know was with us in that intention to make a record that had you know songs that could be on the radio and so we had did been you know did you know like that. when you came in and you heard the guitar track or whenever you kind of heard the track together were you like you're like oh yeah definitely or were you just sort of like it's another one of the songs yeah we like that song but there's these other songs in the record we too. had like there were five songs on that record um that were all like that could be a hit but there wasn't any, there wasn't anything. And, and it's funny because, um, on that, on that record, um, there was also a song called good thing and good thing was the one that like, when we played it for the record label people, they were like that one, you know? Mm. And so the strategy was like, we're going to release hooch first and it'll kind of be like the, the handshake, the like, who is this band? Like, you know, right. and, and then it'll do okay. And then good thing, then that'll like set us up for, for the right. second single, which will like knock it out of the park. Right. And what happened was, you know, as soon as Hooch got played on the radio, people started calling up and saying, what was that song? And it started reacting. Mm. And so, um, Blackbird records, the little indie label had an uplift 
deal with Sire Records, which is basically like, hey, if anything starts happening, you know, on your little label, we can we have an agreement that we can pick it up and and sort of give it our right. muscle and push it out, you know, with with the Sire Records muscle, and. Sire um, saw that started happening and and didn't have a lot of other stuff going on at the time for them, and so they were like, "Let's go," you know, and and that um, for the next two and a half years, it started on like uh, like rock radio, and then it like moved over to like the kind of the middle formats, triple A, and and sort of in between rock and pop. Um, and then ended up on pop radio. And so it had this really, really long mm. arc. And for two and a half years, we were like tour bus and flying and, and yeah. you know, everybody got their own hotel room. And, and yeah. I mean, just after 10 years of playing 200 shows a year and probably sleeping in the van and stuff. And, and sleeping like six or seven to a hotel room. And, and uh, yeah, just all of that. And, and, keep in mind that like everything up to that point had been sort of this like like rise to that this just gradual like you know first you sell 5000 and then you sell 10000 then you sell and and your shows get bigger and bigger as you go and then you play the bigger club in town and it right. had all gone very sequentially like that and we were just like here we are we made it like we crossed over the you know the golden gate and 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 now we're like playing you know, big amphitheaters with, with Hootie and with, with Dave and, and like, you know, it's these big radio shows, you know, we played with NSYNC and Coolio and just like, it was amazing. And then the, I remember we, the, like the most epic day of, of like the, the most rock and roll day that we had was (laughs) we played that we got double booked um, because the record label was booking us for shows because they were like, Hey, radio station, if you add Mm -hmm. our single, then we'll have them play your radio show in the summer or whatever, you know? And at the same time, like our regular booking agent was like booking us for shows like Virginia beach, the Neptune festival. Hey, you, you want these guys to headline. They've been playing Virginia beach for 10 years and and they'll bring out like 10,000 people. And those, so that, radio station in oklahoma and that big show festival show in virginia beach got booked on the same day and we were like oh okay (laughs) and so what we had to do was uh somebody i think it was the record label chartered a a jet wow and so we played a little bit earlier than we were supposed to in virginia beach got like the police escort straight out onto the tarmac grab your instrument put it under the jet, get on the jet. And just for like, while you're putting the instruments on the jet, they can't turn on the jet yet. So it's like baking in the sun. So it was like this little moment of like, remember when we were in the box truck and we were stuck in traffic going to the beach and we would bake in the sun. Like it was just a moment of that. And then like take off and and like fly to Oklahoma. And then like limo met us on the runway in Oklahoma again, like, you know, just, like the whole thing, you know, and we get to this show and we played a little bit later at this radio show in Oklahoma because, you know, we couldn't play earlier. And so there's like 30,000 people in front of the stage and you just, you can't see the back of the crowd. Right. And Matt Pinfield from MTV introduces us. And like, all I remember is just that the sound of the crowd and the fact that it was like over 
like almost immediately. Like there was just this like, mm. and then it was, and then the show was over. Mm. But like the energy, the intensity of that energy was just like, ah, oh, best drug in the world. Amazing. And it's hard, it's hard to, to come down from that. It is. And, and like, you know, it, it's hard being on the road and then you've got that energy and you got like people coming up afterwards, like, like, oh my God, you, you're amazing, you know? And, and like, it's, right. it just messes with your head, man. Like it's really, it's a really difficult, uh, place. I, the road is hard enough, but the road when you're successful is a really difficult place to keep your head on straight. Like just amazing, and there's there's drugs and alcohol all the time. Like anytime you want it, it's 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 there. Somebody is like, is like, hey, please have some, you know, you know, party yeah. with me. Well, and you've always got to be on because even though you've done this every single day, you know, six nights, yeah. and this is your seventh. It's the people who come to see your show; yeah. it's their first time, or they're really excited to see the band. And oh yeah, you've got to be a certain person on that stage. But then after the show, after ninety minutes or two hours or whatever, the show is over, and then you party a little bit or whatever. You got to get on the bus, go to the next place, and then it's quiet. I guess, or you're dealing with the yeah. people in the band and on the bus. And then it's yeah. a, if 500 miles is a long time to sit on the bus. Yeah. And, and just the reality of all of that, you know, the, um, you know, you can party the night before, but then you wake up and, you know, you got to hang over. Yeah. The, the thing too, though, the, that whole time that the song was on the radio, um, we were doing a lot of the morning shows too. Cause like, you know, that's the other <laughs> oh, piece God. of it, you know, like you yeah. get, you get on and do the morning shows and, because 7 a.m. is such a natural time for rock musicians. Yeah. So, like, you get, like, three hours of sleep, and then, you know, the um, the bus pulls up to some, like, you know, sort of corporate-looking building, and, and, and somebody's got coffee, and, and like, you just... You and it's, just the chipper, it. it's the chipper morning people, and you're <laughs> here... Those people. Like, yeah, you know, you're the you're the night guys, and right. and you don't you're not supposed to. It's colliding worlds. You're not supposed to see the morning people. So you're the night yeah. guys, and you're tired because you're woken up in the middle of your, you know, your drunken sleep, and then you got to wake up, and right? just your vocal cords don't work, and nothing. Your, like your, your instruments, yeah. your instruments are out of tune from the night before, and yeah. you don't. You're like, why did we agree to do this again? Yeah. And then you then you have to run into the 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 chipper morning people, which right. is like got to be it's oil and water. Yeah. People don't realize this, but like, you know, Good Morning America, all that stuff, like most of the bands that are playing, you know, they're, they're in New York, they're in New York cause they're playing. Right. And then like most of them, I, I've got friends that are playing for, you know, bigger artists now and, and like, you just don't sleep. Like you just, it's an all nighter and you, and yeah. you, you like your call time is like 4am to, you know, get ready yeah. to go over there and do that thing. And it's just like this, you know, it's just the grind, but like, but you would not hear me complain about that, you know, ever because like you got a hit song, like you get the whole thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's happening, you know? Um, and then, and then yeah. not only is it a hard place to be after the show, just like that next day or whatever in, in the present, but then 10 years later, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's, it's a hard drug to, um, quit. Yeah, uh, or or to maintain, like to like just try and find a healthy lifestyle inside of all that. Right. Raise a family. I can't even imagine. You know, like I can't even imagine the um, just the the difficulty. Yeah. People don't see that side of of how hard it is to to be away all the time and to be in that sort of lifestyle all the time. That that's a it's a it's a grind. 
Well, man, this I, I really appreciate you taking so much time with me tonight. This has been so much fun to catch up and just shoot the breeze and talk about, you know, the old days and being in a band and, um, you know, your your amazing epic journey and all the different you know, twists and turns your career has taken. It's just been uh, really, really fun talking with you. Yeah, likewise. I don't I don't know. What do you do with a podcast of this length? Do you like chop it down or, or is it like you just release the the Moby Dick of it out into the world like this. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a lot of good stuff in this one. I don't know yeah. what you cut out. You know, it's like the, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this, the seven minute version of cashmere. What are you going to, you can't take any, <laughs> right. can't take anything out of that. Well, that, that one riff, like, yeah, we don't really need that one. <laughs> yeah, right. It was actually a 12 minute song originally. And, and they cut out five minutes of, <laughs> I don't know. Right. It was, it's already the cut down version. Yeah. Um, I don't well, know. Cool. I, it, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm iterating as I go on this as well. And, yeah. and, and we'll see. There you go. Um, it's, it's, it's what's re- what's really cool is just to talk with with people who have just an enormous passion for music and um, find out where where our paths overlap and, yeah. and where we have similarities and, and differences. That uh, it's been awesome, man. It's been really great, Steve. Um, great talking to you, and thanks for taking so much time with me and and opening up all the old stories. Yeah. Um, it's been really fun to to hear that firsthand from you. Same. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's yeah, man. Uh, it's fun to talk with you. Absolutely. Have a good one. Cool, you too. A huge, huge thanks to Steve Van Dam for hanging out. I had just a blast talking about his totally cool music journey. And thanks to you, as always, for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star review, and check out some extras at Brenton Hund Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'll talk with you again very soon, but in the meantime, have a great day.